Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack, um, one of our oral history sessions. Uh, we're absolutely delighted today to welcome Gary Powers Jr. Hi, Gary. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. And whereabouts are you and how is lockdown? I am in Richmond, uh, Virginia. Uh, lockdown is very uh, unique. Uh, we are still under uh, lockdown orders through June 10th in our state. Um, as a result of the pandemic, I was in California in March. Uh, my trip was cut two weeks short. I had to fly home March 17th as opposed to March 28th. And from there, I lost 40 lectures. A travel to Florida, two lectures in Europe, and I'm at home looking at what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's just oh, like crazy, all the plans crazy, we crazy. had are gone. No, um, there, there are a lot of people out there right now that have um, uh, are in on are in dire straits, and it's it's a very unique time in our history. And I hope that we will be able to get through this uh, productively and quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I think we would all just like to see the end of it now. Um, Let's talk about, well, obviously, we're here to talk about your father. Um, and I'm very grateful to Ian Sanders of Cold War Conversations podcast for um, putting us in touch with you because it's an absolutely fascinating subject. So talk to us about your dad and a bit about his background. Where did he grow up and, and what was he doing in life before um, the famous incident where he shot down in his U-2 spy plane? Well, my father comes from very humble origins. Uh, he was uh, one of five children in southwest Virginia, uh, being raised on a farm. Uh, his father was a coal miner. His father also had a shoe shop and would repair shoes of the miners. My father uh, grew up uh, during the height of the Depression. He was born August 17th of 1929. And, uh, you know, between 29 and 39, the end, uh, the start of the war in Europe, and then 41, the start of the uh, World War II with America and uh, Germany, um, he was a, a young adult. I mean, he was a kid growing up in the Depression. He told me a story once that he was laying awake at night, listening to his parents talk in the other room. And they were talking about not where the next dollar would come from, but where the next nickel would come from. So this is the, the life that my father uh, was raised in. He was the first of his family to go to college. He was the only boy of the family. Uh, he had five other sisters. And so he was the second oldest. Uh, and in 1946, upon graduating from high school, he uh, went into and attended Milligan College in Tennessee. 
After four years in 1950, he ends up graduating and enlisting in the U.S. Air Force. How much do you remember um, and how much do you... Let me start that one again because I want to rephrase it slightly differently. How much did you know as a child about what your father did for a living? When I was growing up, I was aware that my father had been shot down over the former Soviet Union, imprisoned by the KGB, and ultimately exchanged for a Soviet spy. But as a kid, growing up in this family, we talked about it, I was aware of it. So my perception as a young kid is that everybody's dad went through something like this. That perception changed in August of 77. My father dies in a helicopter crash while working for NBC television in Los Angeles. Um, I am 12 years old at the time, and that's when I become aware or, or more aware of his historical uh, uh, involvement with the Cold War. Um, I was born after he came home from the Soviet Union. Uh -huh. So I was not around when he was first uh, in the Air Force or um, doing the overflights with the U-2 program. Um, tell us a bit about his military career um, up to the U-2 program. Um, in 1950, upon graduation from college, Dad enlists in the U.S. Air Force. He uh, gets his wings in 1952. He is an F-84 pilot flying uh, out of Turner Airfield, Turner Air Force Base, near Albany, Georgia. There, between 1950 and 1956, he's with the F-84 program. He is recruited by the CIA in late 55, early 56, to be part of the U-2 program. And from that point, when he uh, accepts um, their offer, uh, he resigns his commission from the Air Force. He becomes a civilian. He is uh, working with the CIA, for the CIA, doing these U-2 overflights. And the understanding is that they, uh, the pilots will go back into the military at a rank comparable to their peers with no loss of duty time. So um, dad's thinking this is a great way for him to advance with his career. Uh, his wife and I talk about the, op his wife, his first wife mm -hmm. and him talk about the opportunity and they decide that uh, it, it would be good for the family. So dad becomes a U-2 pilot working for the CIA. Uh, he's trained to fly the new high altitude surveillance aircraft at Area 51 in the Nevada desert. In 1956, he's shipped over to Intralik Air Force Base uh, near Adana, Turkey, and that is his home base for the next four years. Between 1956 and 1960, my father does uh, some 27 operational missions, uh, only one over the Soviet Union during that time, but 26 others over Eastern Europe, um, uh, Middle Eastern countries, Eastern European countries, uh, as well as other countries as uh, needed. And so after four years, Dad has 27 missions under his belt. Uh, he's one of the most experienced pilots in the program with the most number of hours. And he is selected to do the, his second Soviet overflight um, that will be some 2,900 miles and will span the entire width of the Soviet Union. So that takes place in the set for May 1st of 1960. So tell us about the, uh, well, now infamous flight, um, the, the one that he is known for. Right. Uh, my father is in the history books uh, primarily because on May 1st, 1960, he gets shot down over the Soviet Union while flying in the U-2, taking photographs of uh, foreign um, military bases, uh, strengths and weaknesses of the Soviet uh, Union. 
So on May 1st, he takes off from Peshawar, Pakistan, very early in the morning, about 6.30. He crosses over the Soviet Union's border. He flips on and off the camera switches that will take the photographic imagery of the ground below. He's four hours into his mission. He's at an altitude of 70,500 feet. There's a bright orange flash, a shockwave from the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile has exploded behind the tail section. As a result, the nose pitches forward, the wings snap off, the plane fuselage goes into an inverted spin, and my father's in the cockpit being banged around, falling out of the sky. Uh, he is getting ready or trying to get himself into the uh, proper position to use the ejection seat. He cannot get his legs in the proper position. If he ejects, he will sever his legs off. So instead, he does the following. He opens up the canopy, which floats off into space. He undoes his harness and is immediately sucked up halfway out of the cockpit. He is still connected by his air hose, half in the plane, half out of the plane, being banged around, can no longer reach the destruct button, tethered up with his air hose. He knows he's getting closer to the ground. He's able to break free of the air hose, falls free of the airplane. His parachute opens automatically at 15,000 feet, and he parachutes down to the ground. So um, this uh, uh, was his experience on May 1st of 60, and the start of um, a, a, a large Cold War snafu that's about to unfold. And I, I understand that you were only 12 when he passed away, so it's, it's dubious as to how much he may have told you about it, but do you know how he felt while the, while the airplane was going down? I mean, he clearly thought very quickly on his feet, didn't he? Yes, uh, my dad did uh, have a good wit about him. Uh, he was one of the uh, be basically top gun pilots of the time mm -hmm. uh, before there was a top gun. The yeah. CIA recruited the best pilots from the Air Force for these missions. They had different, um, um, uh, they had to go through mental profile checks and background checks and basically all American rah rah um, uh, USA uh, uh, citizens. So um, I started doing this research to find out about my father. He died, like I just said, when I was 12 years old in 1977. And um, as a result, I wasn't able to ask him a lot of questions as an adult. I mean, he died when I was a kid. So we did talk about his flight. He wrote a book in 1970 called Operation Overflight. And I was reading chapters in that book uh, up until he passed away. And so I'd ask him some questions after reading a few pages or a chapter, and we talked back and forth. So I have vague memories of those conversations. But since that time, starting in college, I started to do research, wanted to find out the truth of what took place. As a result of uh, this U-2 incident and the fallout that ha uh, followed, um, there was a lot of misinformation, fake news of the time that was circulating in the 1960s and even today via the internet, uh, such things that my father defected. He landed the plane intact. He spilled his guts and told the Soviets everything he knew, or he hadn't followed orders and committed suicide. So these rumors were out there. Uh, his uh, reputation his, his, uh, um, was, was tarnished. Um, and up until his death, there was a black cloud that hung over his head. So after his passing, curiosity got the best of me. I started doing this research in college to find out the truth of what took uh -huh. place. 
And as a result, I have a book out now called Spy Pilot. Um, that's uh, basically Francis Gary Powers, The U-2 Incident, and a Controversial Cold War Legacy. It dispels the misinformation. It sets the record straight. It takes Dad's reputation from infamy and controversy in the 60s to that of an American hero today who has been awarded posthumously after death uh, the Silver Star and the POW Medal. Um, I just, it's great that you've done that. Um, so let's talk about the facts then and, and not the, the stuff that you've had to dispel. So your dad's four hours into his flight, but how have the Soviets discovered there's a plane in their airspace? And I mean, they, they shoot a missile at it, but what's their process for engaging once they realize that they may have like a hostile airplane in their airspace? Mm-hmm. Well, from um, the very first overflight in 1956, Uh, the U-2 was able to be tracked by Soviet radar. They wouldn't be able to track it in a continuous stream, but they knew that there was an intruder in their airspace. They could uh, track it uh, uh, where it was going, but not in a continual motion. So on May 1st, this was the same thing that happened. From the very moment my father took off and penetrated Soviet airspace, they were aware that something was flying over their country. Uh, their radar systems locked on. Uh, they scrambled MiGs uh, and fighter aircraft to try to intercept the U-2. Um, over four hours into the mission, my father is over Sverdlovsk. He's getting ready to photograph SA-2 missile bases that they know are there, but are trying to get more information about. So at this location, uh, one of my dad's primary goals was to um, uh, find out if the missile base was operational. Well, Dad found out firsthand that it was. <laughs> you know, yeah. the SA-2 explodes <laughs> behind the aircraft. So um, uh, the uh, Soviets have engaged their radar. They have scrambled their MiGs. They have also scrambled an SU-9 pilot in a new type of a plane that could zoom up to 70,000 feet. And this guy's orders was to try to ram the U-2. He overshot it and had to circle back around to land low on fuel. But uh, um, uh, another MiG that was in the vicinity trying to intercept my father was shot down by Soviet SA-2 missile by friendly fire. So this is what's going on on May 1st. There's a little bit of chaos. The, the alarm bells are going off. The missiles are being put in place. The planes are being scrambled. They're trying to shoot down or, or get this intruder that's over their airspace. Um, it's basically like a, 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 what do you call it, a battle scene. Um, missiles are being fired. Uh, jets are being scrambled. And they are trying to do everything possible to uh, shoot this intruder out of the sky. Um, just Did he speak Russian? Uh, no, my father did not speak Russian. So uh, my next when, question is about the trial. He must have been absolutely terrified in a foreign country. You don't understand what's going on, uh, a hostile country. Um, it must have been terrifying for him. Yes, um, my father was definitely um, uh, afraid of what may happen to him. Uh, it was explained to him that he would be tried under Soviet law, uh, article, I forgot the article number, uh, but it was basically espionage, and that it would be from, um, uh, I think, five to 15 years in prison with death in some cases. And they always would emphasize death in some cases, trying to get him to cooperate, trying to get him the first three months after his capture, he's interrogated. 
16-hour days, bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death. Um, uh, and he ends up um, going on this trial, or it would be appearing uh, in the docket for this trial. He's being tried for espionage in August of, two, of uh, 1960. So this is, this is the, the, this international incident that's unfolded as the result of the U-2 being shot down. And I have to backtrack a little bit and fill in some gaps here real quick. Yeah. As a result of my father being captured on May 1st of 60, President Eisenhower in America gets caught lying to the American public. The Eisenhower administration said that this U-2 was a weather research plane. In fact, it was a CIA spy plane. Um, in addition, uh, the summit conference planned for May 16th of 1960, where Khrushchev, Eisenhower, de Gaulle from France and the uh, UK uh, prime minister would be in attendance to talk about the Cold War and try to figure out if there's a way to peacefully coexist. Well, as a result of the U-2 incident, that summit conference on May 16th falls apart. Um, Khrushchev is demanding an Eisenhower apology to the U-2 flights. Eisenhower refuses to apologize. Khrushchev storms out of the summit conference, and it looks like the Cold War is about to get hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this, this is all part of this historical reference of the U-2 incident, my father's involvement, that ended up being an international uh, incident. Wow. Um so talk to us about the trial, through what happens to him. The trial uh, set August 17th, 1960, uh, my dad's 31st birthday. Um, he is uh, ushered into the Hall of Columns, which is the uh, big, um, uh, uh, not arena, uh, theater in downtown Moscow uh, for music performances and plays. It was also the site of the Stalin purge trials of the 30s and 40s. Uh -huh. So it's uh, still in existence. It's still standing. I was able to visit there in December of 2017. Um, so the Hall of Columns, bright spotlights are on his uh, docket. Three judges, Soviet uh, judges, are behind. There's a defense counsel. There's a prosecutor. Uh, my father is given access to an attorney, a Soviet defense counsel. But not once does he object to anything said during the trial. Uh, I believe that the defense counsel and the prosecutor, as well as the judges, it was already preordained that my father would receive 10 years in prison, that he would not receive the death penalty. Um, I believe because the Soviets wanted to show the world how humane they were, how nice they were, how they treated spies that they caught in the Soviet Union to embarrass the United States, who had executed the Rosenbergs and who had given Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy captured in New York City in the late 50s, they'd given him a 30-year sentence. The Soviets gave my father 10 years in prison. They were such a nice and humble country. That was the perception they wanted to get out to the world. Right. Um, how was life in Soviet prison for your dad? Did he ever talk about it? Again, I mean, I'm gauging all of this knowing that there's only so much you tell a 12-year-old, isn't there? <laughs> well, yes. Um, I was reading my father's book. Uh, he yeah. would uh, talk to me. I'd ask him questions. He'd answer them. But more importantly, I got access to his letters that he wrote to and from his family while in prison. I was able to get access to the audio tapes that he recorded prior to writing his book, Operation Overflight, in 1970. So as a result of the first-hand conversations as a, as a kid, combined with the research I've done 
that includes reading and listening to transcribing my father's letters and tapes, I have a very good understanding and, and historical knowledge base for the U-2 incident and what he was going through. Mm. Um, as far as uh, the time in prison, um, he was sentenced to 10 years. The first three was going to be in Vladimir prison. The next seven would have been in a labor camp, uh, basically uh, taking a sledgehammer and making big rocks into little rocks. Um, the first, uh, the next 18 months of his captivity, he is in solitary confinement from May 1st to August 17th. He's then transferred after the trial to Vladimir prison, three hours outside of Moscow. There he's in a cell with a, uh, cellmate, Zergard Krimish, a Latvian. Yeah. And uh, they get along. They, they help each other endure the hardship. Uh, Zergard is very good to my father. Uh, he is helping to teach him some Russian phrases and some ways to write the, the language. Um, he's teaching him to uh, weave rugs on burlap potato sacks to pass the time. He teaches him to play chess. Zergard is a grand master at chess. He's a brilliant guy. Speaks, you know, five or six languages. A grand master at chess. Teaches dad to play chess in the Russian prison cell. Occupy the time. Um, so after dad understands the basic moves of the pieces, a little bit of the strategy of, of how to put uh, a, a positions together, uh, Zergard does the following. He sets up the chessboard, he turns around, he blindfolds himself, and he still beats my dad at chess. He is that, <laughs> sm yeah, he, he is that smart. Wow. Um, my dad's starting to think, wow, this guy's really smart. He probably remembers everything I say. He's thinking now, oh, he might be a plant. What's he doing when I'm sleeping? What's he doing when I'm out of the cell? What, 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 you know, what, what's he doing when we're not together? And so um, that was always a little bit of a concern to my father. But more importantly, it didn't, he didn't let it get to him. Zergard and him got along. They established a friendship. They helped each other endure the hardship. They didn't talk about each other's missions other than in very vague terms. Yes, I was shot down while spying with cameras. Uh, Zergard basically said, I was caught smuggling goods and people in and out of Latvia while working for the British. But they didn't go into the details of cities or names or, or, or colleagues, things like that. So they had an understanding of why they were in prison. But again, dad had this little suspicion in the back of his head that this guy was a plant. And through my research, it, it seems pretty um, certain that he was. From what I have found out, his Latvian cellmate was actually working for the British, got caught by the Soviets, and thrown into prison. Uh, from what I understand, he worked a deal with the Soviet prisons uh, to provide information on other cellmates or on other prisoners in exchange for a lighter sentence. Now, I don't have confirmation, concrete evidence of this, but what I have discovered and heard and found it leads me to believe what I've just told you. Oh, my God. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, so he doesn't the 10-year sentence thankfully it doesn't come about does it um he doesn't do it because he's exchanged with another spy how does that happen yeah that is correct so dad is thinking that he's going to have 10 years in prison and 21 months into it through his journal that he was writing and the letters he was sending to and from family he's really starting to get depressed he has anxiety he, he doesn't know how he's going to handle another eight years in a Soviet prison. Fortunately, a total of 21 months pass from May 1st of 60 to February 10th of 62. Uh, on February 10th of 62, my father is exchanged for a Soviet spy, Colonel Rudolf Abel, who was captured in America in the late 50s and given a 30-year sentence. He is serving that sentence in a Georgia federal penitentiary um, he is whisked over to West Berlin uh, February 8th or 9th. My father is whisked over to East Berlin on the night of February 9th. And then that uh, next day, February 10th, a cold, dark, foggy morning, the Glenecker Bridge, Potsdam, Germany. These two spies are exchanged in the first Cold War spy swap. That spy swap was recently depicted in a Steven Spielberg Cold War thriller called Bridge of Spies. So that was the historical significance of, of the U-2 incident, the shoot-down, um, being exchanged for a Soviet spy, and that whole drama was recently depicted in the Spielberg movie. Now, the, 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 the plot thickens. In 62, when my father's exchanged, he comes home to an American public that doesn't really know what to make of this event. Uh, editorials have been written in the newspapers that my father defected, he landed the plane intact, he spilled his guts, or he didn't follow orders and commit suicide. Yeah. So he has all this misinformation circulating around. He is going through a debriefing by the CIA for three weeks. Three weeks of debriefings. At the end, the CIA clears him. He followed orders to the T. He did Can everything just... he was supposed to do. Was he allowed any contact with his family in those three weeks? He wouldn't have been, would he? Uh, no, uh, not those three weeks. Um, uh, he was, um, I want to say they were allowed to talk by phone, but I don't know for sure. Um, I do know that after the three weeks of debriefing, he was put before a Senate Select Committee hearing on March 6th. Uh -huh. uh, the U.S. Senators exonerate him of any wrongdoing. So he's been cleared by the Senate, he's been cleared by the CIA, but he's not yet been cleared by the Court of Public Opinion. Yeah, this the is the thing, isn't it? The fake yep. news. You can, exactly. even if they say three weeks later, the guy did nothing wrong. I mean, firstly, did he ever talk to you specifically about the relief of suddenly being free? Um, 
Yes, I, I would ask my father when I was sitting in bed and he was tucking me into bed about these events of the U2 incident. And one of the things was, you know, what was it like to be on the bridge? Um, and I remember him telling me that he had made up his mind that there was no way he was going to go back to a Soviet prison. If something happened at that bridge and it started to fall apart or he was not going to be able to walk across it to his freedom, he told me that he was going to run for it, dive into the water, and take his chances. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah. Did... And to come home then and to have this debrief, but then I suppose for those three weeks, he's in a bubble, isn't he? He's in a CIA bubble and he can sit in front of his bosses and he can explain what happened and they can exonerate him. But then he has to go back out into the world and face this onslaught of negative opinion um, with no foundation. It must have been awful for someone who was serving his country um to have been released been exonerated and still have to explain himself even well it it, it's my father had a good head on his shoulders um he was very comfortable knowing that everything he did was to the best of his ability that he did everything he was supposed to do he made the right decisions sure you can always you know play our armchair general and second yep. guess what you should or should not have done. But my father was very comfortable knowing that he did everything he was supposed to do under the circumstance he found himself in. Yeah. So he, he was comfortable with himself. He didn't allow, allow the misinformation, the rumors, the, the, the naysayers, the critics to get to him. Um, uh, but he did end up uh, after seven years, 63 to 70, he's working for Lockheed as a test pilot. And then 70, he writes his book, Operation Overflight. So he does take time to write about his experiences and try to set the record straight in 1970. But in 70, everything's still classified. So he couldn't get access to the type of stuff I got access to for my book that came out this past year. Um, You've already mentioned that he has been exonerated and you have set the record straight. And that was he uh, awarded any medals for his bravery? Um, Yes, uh, he was. Uh, At first, uh, right away in um, 1963, 65, uh, my father was awarded uh, the Intelligence Star for Valor by the CIA, but that wasn't widely publicized at the time. Um, And that was the the extent of his uh, medals when he first came back home from prison. Once I started doing research, I was... I was, I, I, uh, I can't, well, let me rephrase this and, and I'll start over there. As a result of my research and the fact that my father spent two years in a Soviet prison, I'm thinking to myself, that makes him a POW. Soviet prison, Cold War, um, uh, uh, in prison for two years, that should be a POW, prisoner yeah. of war. So I write the U.S. Air Force a letter, uh, their review board. Hi, I'm Gary Powers Jr. I'm writing on behalf of my deceased father to see if he's eligible for a posthumous awarding of a POW medal. He spent two years in the Soviet prison in exchange for Soviet spy, blah, blah, blah. Um, I get a letter back saying, no, that he's not eligible. First, civilians are not entitled to military medals, and the Cold War was not one of the directives where the medals were authorized. So I write back and forth several more letters, it, it, nothing happens. 1998, about two years after I start writing these letters, there's a declassification conference hosted by the CIA and the Air Force at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. I'm invited to attend this. 
As a result of the declassification conference, there's a nice manual that you can now find online. I want to say it's called uh, the U2 program 1955 to 1975. And in that, lots of declassified information is first made public, including that my father was shot down at altitude of 70,500 feet, um, that um, uh, um, there was a few other uh, tidbits I've just uh, forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but the most important part is that it was, the, um, it was uh, revealed that it was a joint CIA Air Force project. It was a military-civilian project military was first used. For all intent and purposes, it was a military program. And once that was declassified and it was a military program, that opened up the door for the government to honor that as a hero to our country. Prior to that, it was always civilian because Eisenhower wanted it to be run by the CIA, a civilian agency, so that it would be espionage. He did not want to have the military run it, if the military under LeMay had been flying these planes over the Soviet Union, it would have been an act of war. So Eisenhower wanted it to be an a, a espionage operation, not a military provocation. So when that was declassified, after the Soviet Union falls, the Cold War ends, now they can say, yep, it was a military operation. It was all the time, but then it couldn't be. That's what allowed Dad to be honored by our government. On May 1st of 2000, the uh, 40th anniversary of the shootdown, my father's posthumously awarded with the POW medal for his incarceration, the Distinguished Flying Cross for his uh, uh, heroics, uh, aviation heroics on May 1st, and a special medal for, by the then CIA director, George Tenet. He awarded Dad the Director's Medal for extreme fidelity and courage in the line of duty. As an added bonus, in June of 2012, the 50th anniversary year of the exchange, the U.S. Air Force posthumously awards Dad with the Silver Star. So as a family, we are very honored, very humbled, very grateful to our uh, government for helping to set the record straight. It took 40 and 50 years to do so, but it shows that it's never too late to set the record straight. No, absolutely. Um, and thank God you have. Um, as someone who's literally just spent the last four weeks um, up to my eyeballs in talking to uh, people involved in Band of Brothers, I have to ask you about Bridge of Spies. It's Tom Hanks and Sp uh, Spielberg again. Um, oh, sure. How accurate is the film in terms of your father's story? Yes. Um, in the very beginning of the film, when the, when the uh, opening scenes are happening, it says, inspired by true events. Okay. That means that there's a lot of leeway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Hollywood. They yeah. embellish, they use dramatic effect, they take artistic liberties. The big picture is accurate. Yeah. The shoot down, the exchange, the sequence of events, the, just how that all unfolded is, is accurate in the big picture. But now you get to the details of every scene. They didn't say those exact words. They weren't there at those exact time frames. I mean, there were certain things that were not historically accurate. Yeah. I'm going to go over one or two of them with you real quick. Uh, one is in regards to um, uh, the scene where um, uh, Donovan's home, Donovan is portrayed by Tom Hanks in the film. Mm -hmm. His home is shot out. His windows are shot out by somebody in the street in a car in the movie. That's what happens. He lives in a nice, beautiful home in New York. In reality, that actually happened. His windows were shot out, but he lived in an apartment building. Okay. So th that's the type of details that may not be 100% accurate, but yeah. don't take away from the scenes. Uh, don't take away from the, the, the history. 
I think it's respectful, isn't it, as well, when they say inspired by true events. Well, yes, but it also gives them the leeway to yeah. adapt and, and put in certain uh, things that will keep the audience on the edge of their seat. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, sure. You have honoured your father's memory in, in terms of chasing his medals and ensuring that he's recognised for his brave service. Um, but you've done something else as well. You founded the Cold War Museum in 1996. Can you just tell us a bit more about how it came about and where it is? Well, yes, thank you for asking about that. That is a very dear and near to my heart. Um, I ended up founding the museum, the Cold War Museum, in 1996 to honor Cold War veterans, preserve Cold War history, and educate kids on this time period. I discovered in 92 to 95, I started to give lectures in the Washington, D.C. area to high school students on the U-2 incident. Nine times out of ten, I'd walk into a classroom, I'd get blank stares. The kids thought I was there to talk about the U-2 rock band. They didn't know anything <laughs> about the U-2 incident, let alone the Cold War, that had just ended five years previously. So I thought it was very important to educate students on this time period. In addition, doing all the research to find out about my father, um, I discovered that there were hundreds of thousands of other men and women who fought sacrificed and died during this conflict uh, that weren't recognized. And I thought it was very important that the Cold War Museum be established to honor our veterans, preserve its history, and educate future generations. So in 1996, uh, we incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit charitable organization. Um, for the next 15 years, we start gathering artifacts and items uh, to build this collection, and we're looking for a permanent home. Uh, we finally found a permanent home in November of 2011. We opened to the public at Vint Hill. Vint Hill is a historic Cold War historic site, 45 miles west of Washington, D.C. It used to be an uh, Army um, uh, base that was used to monitor electronic signals, uh, intelligence signals, embassy signals from the D.C. embassies, and other international radio signals and electronic uh, uh, airwaves uh, of our adversaries. So it was basically an NSA listening post throughout the Cold War. The site was decommissioned in the late 90s, and uh, now there's uh, some government contractors on site. There's some homes, apartments, the museum, a winery, a brewery, an educational facility, a, a school, some cafeterias, things like that, uh, and other vacant parcels that are waiting for entrepreneurs to buy and, and continue to build. It's just, it's so amazing. I love that you've done that. And I, I love that you sort of continue not only to educate, but to commemorate as well um, people who served in the Cold War, because it was a war. It was a hostile environment. And just because it wasn't hot doesn't mean that people didn't die for their countries. Oh, um, yep, exactly. Um, and in regards to that, uh, Dad was not the only Cold War shootdown. There were some 38 Cold War shootdowns. Um, uh, between 1950 and 1970, there are still uh, over 100 uh, service personnel who are unaccounted for in those shootdowns. So uh, we know that some of them passed away and have been reclaimed and buried at Arlington Cemetery. But there are hundreds of others that we're still trying to search for. And the federal government, the uh, U.S. government, has a commission in place, uh, I want to say DPMO, that is looking for the remains of these Cold War, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam uh, soldiers. And I, it's something you should never stop looking, I don't think. Right. Um, 
so more power to them as well for what they're doing but thank you so much for coming on and giving us a really personal insight into your family's really very unique connection with the cold war well thank you if your listeners have any uh um, uh, interest in more information or getting in touch with me they can go to my website garypowers.com thank you so much i definitely the next time i'm in the dc area i'm going to stop by and see you as well um all right please do excellent thanks very much you're welcome Join us a bit later on down the pub when we will be talking about history's most important moment. We defined a moment as not being allowed to last for more than seven days, which was interesting. It's, it's quite, it gets quite existential in places, but it was a really good night. We loved it. Join us over the weekend as well. Tomorrow we have Miranda Kaufman talking about Black Tudors, her fantastic book. Join us for that. And then on Sunday, it's the big one. It's our 100th episode already. And we will be talking to John Nicholl about his fantastic new book, Lancaster, about the greatest aircraft ever made. Um, I'm not having it on any other aeroplane. It wins hands down for me. Um, And you'll find out why. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 